This is a special presentation of the AD History Podcast. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul Katie Costanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. And Patrick, for this special episode, I'm not joined by just you today, am I? No, not at all, Paul. So this is kind of a first in a series of episodes we kind of want to make going forward in which we talk not so much about history itself, but something we're equally passionate about, Paul. That's the education, the study of history, how history is studied, how history is taught all around the world. And for this first episode, we have a really exciting guest with us, don't we, Paul? We absolutely do. And, you know, this is something that you and I have been kind of having on the back burner for a while been looking for the right place to start it because AD history is as much about presenting the history that we we present as it is about how history is understood in the time and place that it happens or where everyone might be in the world learning history. It's all kind of unique to that time and place and how we all handle it. And so we came up with this idea a while back that we really wanted to talk to some people around the world to learn more about how history is taught in a variety of countries. And I didn't ever thought necessarily off the bat when we first started cooking this up that we'd be so fortunate, especially right off the bat, to be able to talk with somebody who wasn't just a student and came up in the system and learned it and telling of his experience in that way, but in fact, actually has made it part of his career actually teaching it. And this today, we are very, very lucky, very pleasured to be joined by Stavon from History Hustle, which is a, one of my favorite YouTube channels, especially as a, a World War II guy, and you get into some really interesting topics of World War II that, at least on YouTube, I see very few other people touch. And when they do, not nearly as well as yourself. So, Stavon, our Dutch history teacher for today, who's going to be taking us through all of this, thank you for joining A to History. Yes, thank you very much, Stavon. Great to have you on. Right. Thanks for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. So, Starting first things first, because I, th I think this is awfully important. Just kind of lay the, the groundwork here. How did you become so consumed and interested in history just from the beginning as a human being? Where did your love of history begin? Um, well, I think that was when I was a kid. My grandpa used to tell me a lot about uh, what happened during World War II. He was, in a, he was a teacher himself. He, thought, he taught uh, classical languages. Um, and uh, yeah, he told me a lot about what happened during World War II uh, when he was uh, in, uh, in the country as a, as a little boy and what happened, what he saw and that kind of stuff. And I think that's what got the ball rolling. And uh, it was more that when I was studying on, uh, on high school, I had a, I, in, in the Netherlands we have middle and high school combined. So mm. whenever I say high school, uh, taking account, it's also middle school. It's from the age of 11, 12 till the age of 17 till 18. So it's like that's, combined. Yeah, that's what yeah. we have here in the UK as well. Right. And um, yeah, yeah and, and, that's, and that's when I had a great teacher where I learned a lot from. So I think it was like do, these two components. And then it was basically when I was in the sixth grade, which is like the final grade of high school, um, then you have to choose in uh, what, what to study. And then I, uh, I chose history basically because I didn't know what to do else. And uh, it was, uh, it was in some, some sort of a gamble, but it uh, played out well. Now, in terms of you laying down this, 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 this love, this personal love of history of yours, at what point did you find yourself professionally on a career track 
when you would eventually know you'd become teaching it yourself? When did you make this decision and why? Thing is, is in um, a very pragmatical um, and uh, pragmatic, pragmatical. <laughs> and uh, look, in in the, in the Netherlands, it's it's literally it's um, it's not it's not easy, right? It's it, the the thing mm. is like in the Netherlands, they say uh, study what you want, uh, but at the end, there's a lot of things you can study which are uh, um, yeah, you'll you'll um, you won't find any jobs in it. So what I did was I tried to uh, study as long as I could. Um, so I did a history a film school and I also studied teaching history because you have to get a, a separate degree uh, on that. So the total amount of nine years um, and uh, with the current system is not even possible anymore because you'll, you'll be bankrupt at like triple times. And um, it was then uh, I started traveling after that. And then I was thinking, well, what, what can I do? And then all of a sudden I was lucky because one of my uh, former um, uh, fellow students had like a, a job available at his school because uh, one of his colleagues went with maternity leave. So I could, uh, you know, fill in the ranks and uh, which I did. And luckily there were some spare hours. Some other teachers retired. And that's basically how I got there as a teacher. Um, but it was more uh, out of a necessity because I needed a job, you know, and uh, I was happy uh, I could find one. And uh, at the end of the day, it's also a very nice school, too, because it's uh, it's more in the, in the provinces, so to say, in the rural nice. area. And the kids are, let's say, as a, a little bit nicer there from what I hear, how they are in the bigger cities. Although in NLF, we don't have big cities, but I say bigger cities. So it's interesting. You said you studied history, film, and teaching of history. You've kind of combined all three of those things into your YouTube channel, History Hustle, which is exactly history, teaching history, and of course, film. So is that kind of what inspired you to follow the path of YouTube like so many others? That's basically, uh, that's how you sum it up perfectly, yes. Now, you, you start off and you get this opportunity because there there uh, is a teacher that's on maternity leave that, that gives you this option to kind of be, I would imagine, can be described as like a long-term substitute role. Would that be an accurate definition of that? Yeah, well, I mean, six months or anything, I believe. Yeah, that, that, five months. But most definitely. So in that process, what ages were you teaching initially and what were the subjects in history that you were teaching initially in, in that first six-month period? I had like one third grade, so then you are like 14, 15, and I had, I think, three and fourth grades, and in the, um, again, I'm going to shed some really quick light on the whole Dutch education system, which Please is very do. hard to... Please do. Uh, Every, everybody with, you know, watching or listening yeah. right now, unless they're from the Netherlands or has some direct connection to it, right. they need that background, including us. Okay, so the simplest way I can put it is that, uh, like I said, middle and high school are combined. However, there is some distinction because there's like year one, two, and three. We call that onderbouw, means like under something. And then mm. the year f uh, four, five, six, depends what level you do. If you do another level, you have only a year four and five. We call that bovenbouw, which is upper something. So mm -hmm. that makes a distinction. So in other words, in the onderbouw, you basically uh, get the history from the beginning till times till let's say the end of the Cold War. 
um, and then in the upper uh, classes in the Bovenbouw, you basically do the same over again. However, this time history is not mandatory anymore. So it becomes a, a subject that you choose, which depends either on which profile you choose. So there are like four profiles and two out of four contains history. So then it's mandatory. But if you take a profile which contains no history, you can still choose it as uh, a topic, uh, as a subject of choice. Um, and that's basically, you see that uh, a lot of pupils who choose to do like physics and chemistry and math and all the subjects I'm terrible at, they basically drop history and then we lost them. Unfortunately, because back in the day when I was in high school, history was still mandatory in the upper classes only in the first year. We had history one and history two. One was mandatory for one year and two was uh, the, the optional choice, which you had like you do your final exams in. So that's basically how the, the system in a nutshell works. Now, you mentioned that back in, I guess it would be almost our day, you know, when you think about it, you, you, you would have graduated secondary or high school 2005, right? Okay. So I know coming from the perspective of the United States that we do have a bit more on the high school level of required years, but one of those required years is specifically United States history. Is that one year, it's specifically when it was back in our time, was that one year specific to any type of history or would any 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 sort of history credit fit? Actually, this is the thing. I remember a lot of high school, but uh, the thing, history one, the, the mandatory subject in class four, I'm not, I, the only thing what and this was really interesting is for one, one chapter was about totalitarian states where we compared <laughs> Stalin to Hitler, which I think is like a very amazing and insightful um, topic, which we don't do anymore. But I have, I have to, to ask to my older uh, uh, colleagues who, thought, who taught back in the day and ask them more uh, thoroughly about well, what was uh, history one all about. I think okay. the topics change from time to time. And also the teachers back then had some, how um, say, freedom of movement, which topics they could uh, apply. And what you see here, as uh, now we get to nowadays, you see there's a saying that says, Nederland regeltjes land, which means Netherlands country of rules. And it basically, it gets, yeah, how do you say that? Like in Dutch, we say dichtgetimmerd. It means like a, a hammered shut. So everything gets like yeah. prefixed and arranged and uh, the, the freedom locked of in. movement locked in. And the freedom of movement gets lesser, lesser and lesser. And it's, mm. yeah, it's uh, very entrenched. Know. Entrenched, exactly. Yeah. So is there much of a, so in modern teaching, what you teach the kids today, mm -hmm. Is there a particular focus on Dutch history? Because I know, in like you said, Paul, you did American studies. Uh, I studied a lot of British history when I was in school. So is there a particular focus on parts of Dutch history and what parts of Dutch history? I'm very curious. About highlighted. Myself. There is, uh, but it's, it's, it's weaved in weaved in mm -hmm. uh, into the in the in the main curriculum so some topics are some topics aren't but we don't have something like what you say uh one uh, one year of dutch history although in mm -hmm. um in the middle grade so like i said if you go to the upper classes there's basically three grades i just call them uh low medium and high i mean just out of sake of uh, simplicity and in mm -hmm. the medium grade there is one uh, chapter that focuses on Dutch history after World War II. And it talks about, uh, you know, the decolonization, uh, the migration, uh, the, the, the movements, the youth movements, youth cultures. Mm. 
Um, oh, wow. So that's something you, you have there. But you don't do that in the upper uh, class, because in the, in, the, in the higher levels, because in the higher levels, you focus, for example, on China. There's like a new chapter on China. And you have to learn about China, which I think is a very interesting uh, that topic. That is interesting. So uh, when it comes to teaching Dutch history, obviously right. history is full of the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, it's a big debate over here in Britain at the moment, saying that like the, the British history taught in schools is very glorifying. Mm -hmm. Is that an issue? And you've noticed in the Netherlands only like the good parts, some of the more questionable stuff that's happened in Dutch history isn't covered in schools like it we, we face here in the UK. Well, not at all. First of all, mm -hmm. the, uh, there's been an investigation by a wow. history uh, newspaper. It's, it's some kind of history magazine. Uh, and it came to the conclusion that uh, Dutch history school books nowadays cover uh, sufficiently the dark history of the Netherlands, the colonization of the Dutch East Indies, the slave trade, uh, as, as you name it. Um, so that's basically uh, well enough portrayed as it is. However, there are left-wing activists who claim that this isn't the case. Or mm -hmm. people who draw superficial conclusions, they say, for example, when I was back in high school, um, we didn't learn about the slave trade. And th therefore, conclusion, today's history education system is bad. Well, I have something <laughs> against this. First of all, do you remember everything from high school? I sure don't. Second, perhaps... The, I, try, the, I try to forget stuff from high school. Right. The same. Second, when, when, when people were in high school, perhaps you missed a certain class that, that was talking about slave trade. Mm. Heck, maybe you were skipping school, smoking dope and weed on the <laughs> schoolyard. I don't know. See? So that's that, that's the thing. So it's got like such an activist mm -hmm. agenda. Um, so in short, it talks about it. Uh, the, there's another factor we should take into account is that we have to uh, process a lot of stuff. We have to process, we mm. have to teach a lot of subjects. And therefore, you know, I wish I could find the time to, for example, get like a very in-depth research uh, assignment about, for example, the slave trade and compare it with other countries or other times, uh, the Romans in the China, as you will, you know, the transatlantic slave trade, of course, that mm. would be like amazing. But the thing is, we have to make choices and we already decided that we want to have them a, to make an assignment about the Dutch East Indies, which is very mm. important as well. Srebrenica, you know, the Dutch the soldiers who were stationed in the Balkans when that turned to hell. And obviously, um, other things about the U.S. and uh, other subjects as well. So there's like limited time and we have to do a lot of stuff. Mm. I'm looking forward to touching on all a bit of those. That's why I was just taking a note there so I don't I don't forget. But, but something I did want to ask you about because I'm trying to get something a, a bigger, I guess, a, a kind of a bigger understanding here. Because you had mentioned that at least in your initial run, six months run there, if I understood your answer correctly, is that you were teaching kids along a very large yeah. spectrum. I'm talking just ages in school, whether yeah. it be, you know, it sounds like you had some primary school, then you had some of the secondary school stuff going on at the same time. Yeah. And I'm curious, just to get an idea, because I think it's helpful getting a greater context yeah. of history and how it's taught in the Netherlands, mm -hmm. where does social studies, because that's usually what we call history in the United States before it becomes truly history, right. where do you guys generally start in terms of you know, some of the more impactful, you know, units of, of social studies in history and how does it progress? 
Well, okay, I'm gonna let me let me address this right here. I was just looking it up. So in the in the history subject, um, the the Dutch government decided to uh, distinguish it into so-called time slots. We call them tijdvakken, and they have like. It's <laughs> a great. That's a great term. <laughs> yeah, wait, wait till you hear this. So then there's time time slot number one. It's a time of the hunters and farmers. Then you go mm -hmm. to time slot four, the Greeks two, the Greeks and the Romans, the monks and the knights, four, the cities and the states, the uh, the, the explorers and uh, reformers, uh, well, Lutheran stuff, the regents mm -hmm. and the kings, the Whigs and revolutions, the civilians and steam engines, industrial revolution. Then mm -hmm. there's like the time of the world wars and the final one, number 10, wait for it, time of television and computer. <laughs> Yeah. Wow, so that's a that's a really interesting way to break down history. It's like it sounds really dumb when you first hear it, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Like you can kind of understand they are like the big points in especially in human history. Anyway, so that's not going back to pre prehistoric times. But um, mm -hmm. I quite like those. They're very silly, but they're very engaging and accessible. Like when you yeah. hear the age of hunters and farmers, that kind of makes sense. Greeks and Romans, like there is something quite appealing about that. I must admit. Yeah, it is what it is. And also, yeah. I know uh, these uh, these time slots are also used on elementary school. So mm -hmm. I, I can I can imagine that they, you know, want to avoid like the very extremely harsh names. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the time of concentration camps and gulags. Mm. But, you know, it is what it is. And then in addition, when you go to the upper classes, you get like the uh, the additional stuff, which is the so-called kenmerkende aspecten. How do you say that in English? Uh, well, it, let's just keep it at aspects. And mm. it means like they're all numbered. There is a total of uh, 50. The uh, 49, 49, and there's like, for mm. example, three uh, at uh, the time slot of hunter gatherers, for example, the way of life of the hunter gatherer. And then there's like a number, uh, number 26 in time slot one to uh, six, I believe, uh, the scientific revolution. Uh, absolutist power, that kind of stuff. And they literally have to learn these by heart and reproduce these at their final exam. Well, not by heart, it's more like, sufficient enough as it is but that's basically how it uh, how it works it's it really gets down systematically down and structured and stuff like that and really rigid and entrenched um you know mm. it's 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 simple it's 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 how you say overseeable uh on the flip side it's oversimplified too mm. so it's it's like this balance like you, you want to make it even more complicated but perhaps more closer to the truth or you want to keep it like really systematic in boxes you know entrenched and make it easy to understand it's a debate it, it's a really fascinating one because when i think lessons that basically discuss i'm gonna throw a lot of stem subjects under the bus here but we're all history people here it's yeah yeah we are when i think about lessons that are all about just ingraining stuff into your mind i think like maths and science which is just very binary black and white yes or no answers and it sounds like that's what's happening with history here it sounds like it's just being just binary information that just has to be remembered where when i think studying history i think about the effects of history what we can learn from that as opposed to I think I think the, edge, the the studying of history is more than just knowing what happened. It's knowing the reasoning and whys and how that can affect things. But it sounds like that isn't happening in this way of teaching history in the Netherlands. 
it's a little bit more nuanced because you have mm-hmm. to, for example, learn about how to analyze sources. Analyze, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, yeah sorry. and you know, like how, to what extent it's reliable, to what extent mm-hmm. it's representative. So that kind of stuff, which I do find very interesting, is also part of it. It's called- Oh, that's uh, good to hear. That is still happening. That's uh, good to hear. Yeah, so there's like on top of that, there's like the Vaardigheden, and the Vaardigheden means the skills. So mm-hmm. Oh, that's good to know. I thought it, I, I thought that because like analyzing and trusting sources that was the the bread and butter of my history class. So it's good to hear that they're still happening. It, it begs the question I'm uh, I'm curious about here. We kind of seem to be circling around the, this greater issue when you're teaching it. How are the the lessons effectively uh, tested by a student? Whether that means like some sort of like long form exam, or whether that means writing out some kind of paper or some sort of extended project. What has generally been your experience in terms of how you've asked your students to apply these for the sake of the course? Mm-hmm. What do you expect of them? Mm-hmm. Um, in the lower classes, so-called uh, the, the uh, Onderbau, it's more like uh, reproducing. So you have to learn um, terms and knowing what they mean. Um, and then in the upper classes, you have more. You you also work with sources, but in the, in the upper classes, it's the 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 balance shifts more towards the sources, towards the anal, uh, an, uh, analysis, and less to the reproduction. So I always say to my pupils in the upper classes, uh, be aware of the fact that when you were in the lower classes, you could learn the whole chapter by heart and get a good grade. And uh, there may be a possibility in the upper classes that you learn really well. But if you cannot uh, analyze sources and stuff like that, then you'll uh, you'll you'll uh, you'll suffer. Something I'm now curious about, and this is just this is coming from obviously the experience of my own country, which is that for the most part, and maybe this is not unusual. I can't say for sure, but whether it be kids being taught almost regardless of their age or when they're adults. Most people's understanding of history, even their own, at least in my country, is pretty abysmal. And just, you know, just not to throw my fellow countrymen under the bus here, but what I'm curious about is what is the general disposition and general knowledge of most of your countrymen and the students that you encounter? Um, well, it's interesting. You know, you know what's funny is that I speak a lot of people who, for example, back in the day, they 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 didn't choose history as a topic in the upper classes, and they regret it nowadays. Um, so I do believe that a lot of people are fairly well aware of history, but more like in a sense. Uh, for example, World War Two. World War Two is a big thing in the Netherlands. You know, World War Two is a really really big thing. And uh, everybody knows uh, what, what we mean. If we, if we talk about, for example, the occupation, eh, like the There's occupation. There's one occupation yeah, there, then we know the occupation. Act, we, yeah. we, then we don't mean like a random toilet that's occupied. We mean World War, the, the Germans, <laughs> uh, you, know, co- uh, you know, coming into the Netherlands, that kind of stuff. When we say NSB, which was the Dutch collaborating party during Nazi rule in the Netherlands, then we know what that means. So I think like a lot of um, people are on a on a basic level in World War II very well aware of what happened. The thing is that back then uh, there was a lot of emphasis on World War II. Now it gets less and less and less. Uh, I can only judge for history because you know World War II mm. can also be addressed in languages, of course, right? Of course, um, yeah. 
and other subjects about society, perhaps even philosophy. Um, but I, I'm not sure, like, if in, in, in so many, in, in a bunch of years, let's say, if people still know much about uh, the stuff. Because I feel that during the, you know, I've, I've, I've seen multiple books, uh, textbooks for schools, you know, and they change constantly. Like, almost every year we get a new book. It's really annoying. Mm. And I sometimes feel like the, the emphasis on knowledge decreases more and more and then i can understand you want to emphasize the skills like of analysis which is good but mm. i'm afraid that sometimes knowledge gets like you know lesser and lesser if we get to a point where where a person doesn't know what oswich is or uh, doesn't know what the nsb is all that kind of stuff i i, will, I yeah i don't think that's a that's a good way but on the flip side i'd say history is uh, people know what they what they have to know uh, but on a fairly superficial uh, level. And I know, for example, in the, in the US, we, I mean, we all have these examples when you ask them when was World War II and, 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 they, and they point out the 19th century or something. Yeah. I don't think it's, but, but I don't know how representative it is for the, the US population on a whole. Uh, but again, so in the Netherlands, that's, 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 hard to, that's harder to determine. <laughs> Even for me, you know, but just to throw it, just a throw it in here for just as a matter of, of point because you guys not necessarily know it so i have to say it is that given the size of the country and just how culturally regional it is one's experience in terms of people's knowledge of history almost regardless of subject is going to vary significantly even in these earth-shattering events like world war ii are going to be significantly different between somebody that was born and raised and taught say in the new york city area mm -hmm compared to, say, what somebody might learn in Miami wow. or or Dallas or San Francisco. It's it's a very... Well, you've been to the United States, yes? Not not Patrick. I know you've been to the United States, Patrick. I'm talking to you. Have you been to the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Last time was uh, 2012, I believe. Okay. Yeah, just from any sort of curriculum standpoint, but especially history and social studies, very regional. So depending on who you're getting and where they're from, it's going to dictate a lot of what they know, and in some cases, precisely how they're interpreting that knowledge as well. Something I'm curious to know about, changing the subject slightly, is how is the study of history regarded in the Netherlands? So over here in the UK, often like math, science, and English are seen as like the top three. Like every kid has to have like good education in math, science, mm -hmm. and history is very much an option. Like it, it, if you're like if if someone were to say they're studying history at university it's maybe not as held in as high regard as something like science or maths or anything like that mm -hmm. uh does history and the education of history have a sort of a stigma like that in the netherlands too no actually not it's mm -hmm. um I, I think that's that's uh also that has something to do with the broader picture of that in the netherlands we uh respect people for what they study so mm -hmm. it's like you know if i if i meet let's say uh i mean you know if i meet a random girl that studies here right i mean mm -hmm. half of the time they're studying communication studies right half mm -hmm. of the time they do that but not but i'm not gonna mock them for that although <laughs> but in, you know what i'm saying it's like they choose that kind of stuff but as for history no i actually i when i studied history and i said it to people i always got positive responses so, so what, yeah. what's communication studies they might be asking 
But it is. Yeah. I, like literally, I, it, it, if you ask me, it's nothing. It's literally like a okay. lot of mumbo jumbo about nothing. Uh, and then communication studies. Well, <laughs> the name implies is how do you communicate that okay. kind of stuff. But it's very, it's very broad, and it's a lot of time is chosen by people. And I'm obviously I'm overgeneralizing here, mm-hmm. so bear it in account who don't know what to study and they choose that. I mean, okay. I didn't know what to study, and I chose history, and I was lucky because mm. it was the right, the right shot. But yeah. Okay, how oh, fascinating. And also, I guess, in regards, how are your students, how do they react to studying history? Obviously, you've got some who study it out of choice, so you'd presume they are like more engaged with it. But say some of the younger years when they still, uh, it's still mandatory to them, are kids engaged with history today? Are they fascinated or they just sort of think it's a bit of a DOS sort of waste of time lesson, for lack of a better term? Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Uh, I mm. think a lot of them are very well aware. It de- really depends on where, where they're from because, you know, we're a migrant country and, you know, m- most of my pupils are, let's say, uh, how do you call that? Uh, they're born, their family was born and raised in the Netherlands. But if mm-hmm. you have, for example, in the, in the bigger cities, you have uh, people who have like Moroccan or Turkish background. And I can imagine that they, right, they have like, yeah, my, my family wasn't here in World War II. So, yeah. It's, uh, you know, we don't, uh, they're, they're perhaps less interested in that. And then, you know, not to mention about the whole controversy. If you, in some classes in Amsterdam, for example, you start mm. teaching about the Holocaust and there are like certain pupils who can only talk about Israel, how bad Israel is and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah that leads to uh, na- nasty situations. But I've heard that's, oh, I, I, I checked that and it's, I believe it's only an incidental basis. So it's therefore, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not that it happens every all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in my class, I can't freely talk about it, but it's, 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 it, is, it is a thing that uh, some teachers in Amsterdam are afraid to teach about the Holocaust. Gosh, how interesting. It... I, I'm curious, what is it exactly that they fear specifically? They fear the bad response of pupils with an Arabic migrant who are very much uh, uh, interested in the, and how you say it, fed up with the situation that uh, evolves in the Middle East regarding Israel and Palestine. I see. So they, they tie them in together. And they, they treat them one and the same, got it. What sort of age range are you talking about? I don't know if you obviously you said you don't teach history in Amsterdam, but like no. any sort of age, age range, is this like quite young kids who know like, yeah. I'm trying to think when I was like, uh, when I was sort of 12, 11, 13 or so, like I definitely didn't have an as broader understanding of history as I do now. So it's interesting if kids that young are so aware of things like the Palestine-Israel conflict and issues, that'd be fascinating to know. Uh, well, I doubt if they were aware. Mm. I mean, it's it's it, the age. Coming back to your question, is between mm. twelve and eighteen. Yeah. Um, so it's basically the whole range on high school. And do they have any broader understanding? Well, obviously they don't. But mm. neither do their uh, they, do their extreme left wing sympathizers who basically walk among them uh, with these horrible uh, anti Israel uh, plates. Which I mean, I can understand in a way, but I find it in a way very ignorant. Uh, because you need to understand the whole picture. I mean, I'm not choosing a side in this conflict because mm. it's messy AF. Um, but here you see they yeah. got really fed up. Also by social media, obviously, right? If something her- terrible happens there, you know, you take a picture about about some some poor Palestinian uh, boy who gets shot by an Israeli soldier. Yeah, I mean that makes an impact if you if you if that's being filmed or you know photographed and shared over the world. And that's basically how they how they how they get their information. Know, along with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and and then I you know the the whole thing um, 
I don't want to get too political here, but on the flip side, I'm not afraid to do it either. Uh, people can cancel me they want, but this is, a, this is the whole thing I don't understand. Because the, the thing is, it's about uh, Dutch, um, you know, Arabic people, D Dutch Muslims, as you will. They hate it that the fact, which I can understand, right, that, that fellow Muslims in Palestine are being, uh, being targeted, are being killed, mm. are being, you know... Uh, mortally wounded which i can totally understand and that's how they go onto the streets and protest against that and i can fully understand that but then i have one critical question um if that is the case where were they when i don't know the taliban was executing people which were muslims when isis was uh slaughtering and uh pillaging their way through iraq and syria and slaughtering mostly muslims i mean also yazidis obviously but also muslims who became major targets of these terrorist attacks let's not forget that then there were no protests against it so then i'm thinking mm. like are they really having feeling the sem the sympathy of the the their fellow muslims being targeted of violence or are they just a bunch of anti-Semites who are fed up and want to express that? I don't know. Now, so we, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I this is personally to fulfill some curiosity on my part, especially uh, regarding the Second World War. How does that conflict, even though you, you know, you've mentioned that some of its importance has been less emphasized today in a, in a variety of ways, though, how does that conflict and the Dutch experience still color Dutch society and, and Dutch current events and Dutch politics today? Um, well, of course, uh, it's very interesting because now in the Netherlands, they release a TV show about a Dutch politician 20 years ago. His name was Pim Fortuyn, and he was very critical when it came down to migration. And when he uh, expressed his concerns about that, he was, uh, well, he was uh, seen as a racist and as a fascist. And as a result of this, he was, uh, there was a political assassination on him and that costed his life. And that's very interesting. Is that it took uh, a lot of times to a lot of time in the Netherlands to even that was till today. Was that mm -hmm. back in two thousand two? Yeah, two thousand two. I remember uh, we had a listener bring this up to us a while back. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was like the, the critical critical about mass migration, which I think you you, you should be. Uh, which I don't think, you know, you don't, don't, don't be racist, obviously, but you know what I mean, right? And that, back then, that was like absolutely taboo. You cannot talk about migrants because, you know, back in the day, we targeted the Jews and this is what happened. Uh, but, you know, stuff gets... The, the, the thing is, our society is like really like almost like segregated, mm -hmm. uh, as you will, from bottom up and unfortunately also from top down because, you know, it influences each other. So you have like eth ethnic profiling the, the the cops do in the Netherlands. You know, I think it's, 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 it's you know, it happens in other places. Yeah. Too. You know, and these problems that have been, uh, they, they should be addressed without like, like, like uh, resorting to hate speech and that kind of uh, terrible uh, things. Um, the problems needed to be addressed. And Pim for time, he did that and it costed his life. And it was basically an inherent of the World War II that back then we had like an exclusion of a group. Uh, so therefore, we should never, ever go there again. Not even the slightest way if you would criticize a group, as you will. So I think that's a very big uh, thing in the Netherlands. And, you know, obviously the good parts is that luckily uh, we're all against racism. We're all against fascism. We're all against Nazism. Mm. And it's something, something that needs to be emphasized day and day. But the problem is in the current uh, polarized political uh, 
situation we have here in the Netherlands, and I think if you compare this to the US, we're still w way better off, but still uh, the, the word fascist has inflated uh, a big time. Because if you, if you, oh, we're definitely if, no exception to to that yeah. particular phenomenon. No. So yeah, that's uh, so the World War Two has uh, that's what it has left on the on the country, and I think it's you know we 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 grown from it, and it's 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 we've gotten better from it. But yeah, you can uh, go into overreaction when so something something happens. Now this this kind of enters some interesting territory here specifically in regards to your specific experiencing teaching history in the Netherlands. You are not somebody who, whether it be in our conversation today or any of the work that you have produced on YouTube, ever shied away from stuff that is controversial and, and handling it in as mature a way as possible. How did you handle what are largely at times some very incendiary issues and, and teaching them and presenting them in the classroom? What kind of incendiary issues we're talking about right now? Any, anything that comes up in history in your country that could be generally considered controversial that you would have had to deal with during your time as a teacher. It's interesting. Uh, last year I had a, I had a pupil uh, who was from Palestine. And, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but it's interesting because uh, how to deal with that? Well, it's, uh, it's always talk. Talk with the, the, the people. Talk with the pupil. And stick to facts. You know, stick to facts and visions on these facts. And that's basically how you, uh, because that, that's something that's controversial. I think that's the only thing that would be controversial because World War II isn't. I mean, there's nobody that says the Nazis were good. Nobody. Like, <laughs> we all agree that the Nazis were evil, right? So we're all on the same page. Um, but when it comes down to these topics like, uh, you know, like Israel, um, and you have like people from, uh, for example, Palestine background. Uh, yeah, that's something to, to handle in a delicate uh, way because I always have this saying, right? I never ever want uh, anyone of my class to feel excluded uh, because his of her background. I mean, behavior, of course. yeah. If you behave like a bad kid, I'll call you out on it. Uh, but when it comes down to background, no, I'll, I'll have none of that. So mm. that's what I, I want. I want everybody to feel safe in my classroom uh, regarding if you, you, you know, your gender, ethnicity, uh, all that kind of stuff. I couldn't care less uh, where you're from, uh, what your gender is, your preference. I don't give a damn. I mean, it's we're all in the same classroom and we're all uh, we're all pupils. We all want to learn something. They are. I'm the teacher. And uh, yeah. We're so, Dutch, so to say. So something yeah. I'm curious to know about. Obviously, you run the great YouTube channel History Hustle as well. How much does YouTube play a role in the classroom? Because I've spoken to a huge variety of teachers, um, and some of them use YouTube a lot more than others. It could just be sort of something to engage the kids at the beginning. Um, I came into school. I think I remember one of my earliest memories of education on YouTube is watching one of CGP Grey's videos in my government class, my history class. Mm -hmm. So um, I was I, I was kind of leaving uh, education high school just as the big sort of education YouTube revolution, for lack of a better term, was happening. So I'm just really curious to know if today how much YouTube does play a role, if it's used a lot or not at all. Bear in mind that a lot of content on YouTube is in English. Of course, yes. 
I'm teaching in the Netherlands. So the, oh, uh, yeah. in the upper class, I do show English videos. Mm. I do. Uh, but in the lower classes, you you, you had to stick to Dutch because else they, mm -hmm. they won't follow it. So okay. uh, the, the, uh, what, what is there to offer is much less. Although there is like uh, school TV, which is like these documentaries who are by now, I think almost 20 years <laughs> old it's it's it's, it's terrible uh, but I, I still show these i show my own videos as you will yeah of course um and, and i'll be traveling traveling to athens uh, in, wow. in a couple of weeks so i'm i'm probably although i'm not uh, a big fan of ancient history i will record some ancient stuff because then i have some some video material oh, totally. to show in class so how, that's basically youtube plays a role yeah how, how do the kids react to their teacher's youtube star <laughs> well, I, I remember like during the, the first big, um, how do you say that? Like when a lot of uh, viewers uh, yeah, came to the channel and the growth. Yeah. yeah, the breakthrough. That was like really a thing because then you get like the shift from a guy who's like making videos on YouTube and has mm. like a bunch of thousand subscribers to a guy that gets like uh, 10, 20, 30K uh, mm. subscribers. Uh, so that it's like the shift, but then oh, it just real quickly. Sometimes here and there, when I walk through school and I have pupils that don't have me as a teacher, they ask, they come to me and say, "Hey, you're that the YouTuber, right?" <laughs> uh, but most of them, they I don't think most of them watch my English content. Although I do have Dutch content on a Dutch uh, sub channel, sure. yeah. but it's yeah. like way way less subscribers, barely five thousand. So yeah. So this uh, this begs an interesting question here, Stavon. When and why did you learn? English. Oh, so I can kind of well, I can kind of answer that one. Just obviously, first of all, I need to say so much thank you for talking in English to us because your English is impeccable. Yeah, yeah. So you're very, very good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, and like from from what I've gathered, I've been to Amsterdam, I've been to the Netherlands, all over quite a lot. I'm pretty much all you guys speak better English than most people in England. It feels like at times English. From what I've gathered, in, learning English is a very big part of 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 the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. But if you can share more light on that, of course you can. That'd be amazing. Yeah, thanks. Nice to hear. Um, I you know, <laughs> I learned English via okay, okay. We're we're gonna get, we're gonna get to, I say we're gonna get to shady now because right. <laughs> so back then I was following a TV series on TV called Lost. Perhaps you remember mm, it. We know Lost. It was like but no, right. Yeah, we know so, Lost. And then I discovered like all of a sudden the Dutch TV channel they had like a break so there was no lost and I was like this sucks but then it was the time when uh, BitTorrent came around and you could like you know you could download everything mm -hmm. you want back in the day I remember uh, there was no problem mm. there was no problem no. and uh, no problem and then but then there were no Dutch subtitles of course so I had mm. to watch the whole stuff in English and that's basically uh, how. Uh, that's that's how I make my break, breakthrough by watching stuff uh, in English. You don't, you know, you didn't, you didn't know, uh, you had no subtitles. So that's basically uh, and traveling, of course. And but that was later. Yeah. So when it came to making YouTube, it must have been so. so did you have to come to a point where okay, am I going to make stuff in Dutch, or am I going to make stuff in English? Uh, what came first? Was your English content first? Or was your Dutch content first? It was both. I started wow. this, it's true. I, I started, this is no joke, I started with a channel that contained both Dutch and English videos. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, one person said to me, it doesn't make any sense because, you know, you want to, you have to focus. Mm. And that's basically, I removed the Dutch content and I put that on the Dutch channel. Mm. Okay, and I wow. continued with English. Yeah. Gosh, that must have been, it must be like, it would never occur to me. And I've had like, I get emails saying, hey, do you want us to translate your videos into other languages? And like, but I think me, me and you, Paul, we're so blessed, I guess. To, it's a double-ended sword to be born into English-speaking nations because it is such a 
you know, clearly Indeed. on the internet, it's clearly it's, it's the main, it's like the lingua franca of YouTube almost at points. That's so to hear and to think, oh my gosh, to be a success on this channel, to be a success on this platform, I have to speak in my second language. That's incredible to hear. Mm-hmm. It, yes, it, it, it really is. So I'm curious now, where where do you see as the 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 meaningful overlap between what you do in the classroom and what you do in terms of the videos you release? What are the common qualities there that you bring to both that you think are awfully important? What I bring, obviously, from the YouTube to the classroom is obviously the videos because it's very mm. – uh, it is one thing to have a teacher speaking about stuff or showing pictures of him uh, on a historical location. But when a teacher actually is on the historical location, a great deal of my videos are recorded on location, mm. a lot of pupils find it really interesting. Like, oh, the whole idea that this guy went there to shoot there on location – so that's uh, one thing. And what I can bring from the classroom to the channel is basically that I uh, know how to uh, how to teach and have like uh, the, these common pitfalls. Like for example, um, when you're a teacher, you need to address uh, many points and find different angles to explain things. And I did that also on my channel where I find different angles. For example, I make like these these an- very basic animations, like these small things to make people understand uh, the overview. And when you don't, I, I think when you don't have that um, t- uh, histor- uh, that educational background, sometimes you can just blast information to people. Um, but then there may be a risk. I'm always like uh, in the back of my mind when I'm uh, researching and writing the script, like if I use a certain uh, word of an organization or some kind of stuff like that, abbreviation as you will sometimes, like does did I already explain it before? Does anybody know? Is there a risk that somebody can like drop off because he or she doesn't understand a certain aspect any longer? So that's how it comes from the other side. And another question I'm curious about is in the classroom in the Netherlands, for you in particular, what has been the most consistently difficult aspect of teaching history and where you have taught it in the classroom? Where, what, what do you feel has, has been most consistently the, the challenge or challenges that have existed for you? Telephones. Oh, <laughs> fascinating. addicted. Jeez. I had, it's, you, know, it's, God, it's, I didn't, you know, it's just been so long. Since I've been in, uh, in, like, since you and I are the same age, phones were around and there were rules around them, yeah, yeah. but they were, they were they just weren't were as capable, you know? It was so strict back in the day. If you got called in class, you lost your phone for good. Uh, yeah. Nowadays, you have kids sometimes calling in the class. Um, so that's, that's, I mean, that's a hassle, right? That's a thing. You need to adjust it, but it feels like, it, it, like you have like these annoyances and how you say it? Sometimes you you you, you kind of ignore it. Sometimes you you can get really pissed about it. Mm. Um, I have classes from the little bit lower grades who like literally addicted. They're like we, their their face is glued on the phone, and I kind of then I at some point I'm like cut the losses and <laughs> focus on the pupils that do want to pay attention, and you know leave the leave the phone glued people behind you know, they're, they're I mean, lost it's, it's game over yeah. it's, it's i mean yeah 
is is there no means from which to 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 discipline kids for something that they absolutely should not be doing in class? <laughs> no, it isn't. Well, I, I mean, obviously not dance on the table and 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 punch your fellow pupil in the face. I mean that Preferably kind of stuff. Not. That but I'm talking about in terms of the phone because but the phone. You can't no, it have is both. hard because this is the thing. This is the thing. Back then, I believe, like years ago, you could like take the phone off a pupil and then. Uh, lock it away for three days and then before he or she could uh, return it. Uh, they, they outlawed that stuff. So that's not allowed anymore. So our hands are tied. Um, and you, you, you obviously you can say, give the phone to me for the, the, the duration of the class, right? Uh, that's an option. But, you know, then you have to, like, be policing around. And the school that I'm teaching at is also very liberal, which I do like about it, you know. But it has some uh, negative uh, si- uh, aspects also, of among which what I just mentioned. I think it's so fast. I think the whole argument about phones in the classroom, is it, it could be a conversation we could have unto itself. But, like, oh, yeah. phone, phones aren't going anywhere. And, like, once no. kids leave school or even out of school, they're still... You know, they're a mainstay and like it's hard to deny like we've got most of us, if you've got a smartphone, you've got pretty much the entire world's information mm-hmm. at your fingertips. And it, it'll probably reach this point where kids are going to be like, well, this is all in my pocket anyway. Why do I even need to hear it from you? Like, and especially as as people who, you know, smartphones are a huge fact part of our businesses at like YouTube. Yeah, a lot of people yeah. watch watch yeah. educational content. I think like smartphones are my highest uh, like form, whatever they want to call it. So it, obviously I love learning as well and they do play a role in like, I think they can play a role in the classroom. I'm just not sure what exactly that role is, but I think kids need to learn. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I talked to my dad once and he said, school, it's not going to be about learning things. It's going to be about learning how to access information. Like these are sort of tools we could be, be giving children, especially mm-hmm. like I said, with history, it's so much more than just learning information. You can't, you can analyze it yourself. There's that human, there's such a human aspect of history that a smartphone can't really teach you. That might have been a massive ramble. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I just think smartphones in classrooms are a very interesting subject. And yeah, something's got to be done about it to make it doable. <laughs> I am curious about one thing, though, in terms of, you know, you know to, to use a, a, an English phrase, uh, make lemonade from lemons or you know, make lemon flavored vodka from lemons, whatever, whatever you prefer on that one. What potential role can it have that can further your goals and be positive to the classroom experience as opposed to it being just a straight out bane, which for the most part it is? How can you how can you make it work to your advantage? Like the phones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are things like you can do like these little quizzes on phones, which is nice. Um, and when a pupil forgot her laptop, uh, because they have a laptop now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when they have to do assignments, they, when they forgot it, they can act, they at least can do something on their phone. But the biggest problem is, and the same goes for the laptop, There's when it comes down to the phone, there's a lot of other things you can do on the phone yeah. which aren't related to the class. And that is, let's say, the, the major uh, problem. It's, it's actually, it, it applies the same for laptops. You know, when mm. I'm, when we have basically two types of classes. We have working classes when they're working on an assignment, then they use their laptop. But then we have also like the, the normal where we have the book, right? The book, let's read out of the book and make the assignments in the book in your, in your, in your how do you call it thing? With yeah, paper. Mobile device phone. No, no, no. Like, how, how do you call it thing? 
Notebook. There you go. Oh, um, <laughs> I just forget simple words. Do not uh, worry. I said your the, English is impeccable. It's far better than yeah, our Dutch. Yeah, okay, do not worry it's, about it's, that. It's terrible when you have like these, these simple words and you're like, well, what was the word for that again? Anyway, do not worry so, at all. But then sometimes they have, don't have their book with them. And they say, well, I have my laptop so I can... Uh, I can get in the book digitally. And mm. then you say, well, that's a good solution. No, it ain't. Because then they're on other websites and looking on stupid stuff and playing games. So it comes with a major downside too. And they have to police again, go to the back, back of the classroom, look at all the screens. I mean, it's it's an ongoing thing. Mm. So it, it's basically learn to live with it. Yeah. And, you know, choose your battles. Let's it's almost... It's almost as if, like, because obviously when I was in school, we had the ICT suite, which is the room full of computers. And those were computers that had, like, pretty much everything. I think Google Images was even locked away on them. YouTube, you couldn't get onto YouTube on them. Um, it's almost like you need a smartphone version of that where kids can access. Because I think, I think it would be really great if kids realized, hey, I can use my phone to learn things. Like, if you're to set an assignment and say, I want you to use, or maybe not Wikipedia, because it's not, I want you to use your phones to research this subject. But, and you said that that's a great idea. Kids could do that. But however, if they're using their own personal smartphones, they're going to end up on YouTube, on games, on whatever. So like, it's almost like you need a school-specific smartphone that can only do that stuff in the same way no. the computers at my school could only do school-required stuff. And like I say, I think there is, I think there is, I think there is a use for smartphones in schools. It's just making sure they don't get used for the wrong reasons. Just thinking back to my time learning history in primary and secondary school or if you're listening here in the United States, middle school, high school, have you ever considered make, if you haven't done it already, and I think this would be particularly an interesting question in your case, have you ever considered making a, as opposed to like, for example, like a, a more formal paper or, or a test of some kind, have you ever considered assigning a project where Obviously, they have to present some element of understanding of what you have taught them over the weeks and months that had preceding it. Have you ever considered making a project, or if you've done it already, that is effectively the the student or small group doing that, but the, doing it in the form of it being a YouTube-like video, something similar to what you do, but also obviously is pertains to what you've been teaching and as a way of obviously demonstrating some mastery of the subject yes we we once did that it was um we have like these special hours where you can give like these special classes which are uh optional and i once did that that uh, make a youtube video for history so we basically look at the fundamentals of a history of a youtube video and then give them their own uh option how to make a video so there were like kids who who did uh, basic animations uh there were kids who, who stood in front of a big school map, you know, the ones you see uh, mm. in my videos often behind me. And then there were also children who uh, hopped on their bikes and cycled to a historical location nearby. For example, the Grebbeberg, um, where the Dutch fought against the Germans in May 1940. And they went to some reconstructed trenches and cemetery, war cemeteries and recorded there. So that was actually pretty cool. That was, uh, mm. it was nice stuff. And like, so did you also have to then teach them video editing or like the kids already have a pretty basic, I imagine like kids yeah. probably by now have quite a basic understanding of how to by, stitch a video together. By now they're basically have a quite, uh, they have an understanding of how to put that together. So mm. I remember like uh, when I 
taught uh, I did some um, freelance uh, film teaching classes mm. uh, years ago on my old on my former high school uh, when I was just studying history and then I remember that I had to teach the kids about editing nowadays you basically don't have to do that any longer I mean they know the technical mm. stuff the artistic side yeah that's something uh, <laughs> to cover honestly yeah because like iphone like the, the iMovies on iphone it's not perfect but it gets the job done like that can exactly yeah that can really get you going but the question i'm curious is let, let's put aside the the requirements that officially exist and and the curriculum something more intangible something that is more specific to you as a given student's history teacher especially when you're talking about higher ages when you start talking about the the, the high school the secondary school in terms of you being their history teacher and, and they get to the end of the year, in terms of you as their history teacher, if, if, if you had your druthers, what do you most hope that they took from you as their history teacher? What, what in particular that is by no means official, it's not one of those things that you have to test or, or show mastery of, but it's something that is imparted by you specifically. What do you consider to be the most important things a student could walk away from after learning history from you that you think are incredibly important that you in particular would look at that and say, ah, I've done a good job. I've done something special here. Mm -hmm. What um, would that be or what would they be? It can be more than one thing to be sure. Uh, one is more like on a on – a uh, how do you say that? Like on a mindfulness level, is that be glad that you're alive today because there was so <laughs> much suffering in the past. Mm. Uh, you know, I always say like when people say I'm hungry, I say you're not hungry. You 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 want to have food. If you would be hungry, you would. I'm gonna steal that for from like, you. Say four days. I mean, it's it's it, in the Netherlands. You you can say you can be hungry and you can have trek. And trek means yeah, you're up for a bite. Uh, and I always say. No, you're not hungry. You have tech because hungry, you will be hungry if you haven't eaten for, like, say, three, four days. Hmm. Uh, that's one thing. And another thing, uh, um, more on a, uh, it's, it's like we call that the several things. Two, I'm going to address. Uh, one is standplaatsgebondenheid. I don't know how to say it in English, but it means like your standpoint, the, the way where you grew up, the size, how you look at things. So, for example, uh, perspective. Hmm. There, there you go. That's the thing. And the second one is like uh, make sure about which is um, as on to the perspective where uh, check your sources. Uh, mm. And to give an example of that, I uh, recently had a bunch of pupils who a lot of them, they use Internet as source. And mm. sometimes it can be good and sometimes it can be bad because uh, what they did was they had they used some kind of Internet forum as a source which is already bad enough as it is because a forum, everybody can write stuff on a forum, right? But it wasn't just a forum, no. You know which forum it was? It was, well, it was a forum a... that went by the name of Stormfront. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't, but let me tell you what it is. It's a neo-Nazi neo forum. So yeah. they use it as a source without knowing it was a neo-Nazi forum. <laughs> Stay the hell away from that. <laughs> that is once again a great example of why <laughs> learning history is so important so like this sort of anal the, the, the analyzing part of history because so often it's analyzing sources and that is so relevant in today's climate like realizing where an article is coming from realizing where a tweet is coming from that's so important that they, those are lessons that you can learn they're, they're lessons that 
schools are so desperately trying to get kids to understand how the internet works. And it, it's something that has been being taught in history classes for decades now. Yeah. And that's yes. and the, yeah. the final thing I want to add. Mm. And it's also what I, what, what I, what, what I, I don't know, I get really annoyed by it on the channel also. It's like people who think there's only one cause. So that's like, there's the one and only cause. And mm. that's why the, the Germans lost World War II, the one and only oh, cause. Thank you. And there's like, thank literally, you, thank there's, you. literally, there's like, I, I always like, I, I, I mean, I cause it myself, but in the thumbnail, I always ask a question. Like, for example, I don't know, Stepan Bandera, hero or collaborator. And then, mm. and then, and then persons like, like type immediately, oh, this, that. And I'm like, for, for the love of God, please watch the damn video <laughs> instead of being like some kind of, I don't know, trigger happy person that like comes oh. right away. It's don't, so yeah. stupid. I don't get it. What are they trying to prove? I call them out on it because I reply to every comment. I try. I try. I and I'm calling out on that. I'm calling them out on it big time. Please watch oh, the I... damn video. <laughs> Jeez. Like, I get people comment on, like, so, like, if my answer is a question, if my video title is a question. Yeah. It's like they answer it like, yeah, that's the video. Why, why didn't you just, like, why did you answer it? Like, sometimes my <laughs> yeah. videos do have, like, one specific answer. It's like, yeah, like, who, who are you trying to prove this to? Like, that's so weird. This is quickly turning into a, a YouTuber group <laughs> therapy session. Yeah, we'll I hang up. Let, let, let's stop I'm the recording. I'm loving it. We can start the group therapy after we finish recording here. I'm going to do it no, with my is... shoulder. Finally, somebody to, to share my, my, my yeah, inner we'll struggles with. with. It's a whole thing. No, it, it's, a, it's, it's really fantastic. And, you know, I, we always like to leave our, our guests who are always, we're always very grateful for joining us. And Stavon, you've been excellent here today. Thanks. And we thank you so much. We, thank we you always love leaving you the guest with the last word. And for anybody listening to this right now, if you can and this is kind of ties back a little bit with the previous question, but much more specific, which is that for you at the end of the day, what is the most important aspect about learning history, not just in the knowledge, but in the way it's consumed and understood for you as a student of history, as a historian? What, at the end of the day, what is the greatest value in that particular effort? I'm coming back to what I first mentioned. Stuff doesn't happen for just one reason. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. There are other causes of stuff happening. That's what you need to research. The question is not which uh, one is the one and only cause. Um, it is the question on which different causes are there and how do they relate to one another? Which one is more important and more determining for an occurrence to happen than the other? Absolutely fantastic, Stavon. Thank you so much for sit coming in here and sitting down with us and having this discussion with us here this morning. Not only has this been a great pleasure, but as has your channel been in general. I just remember when I was going through this process, maybe I guess it was probably about a month ago now that it, when it hit me, I said, oh, my goodness. I subscribe to somebody who is, in fact, who, in fact, teaches history. You know, this might be worth reaching out from and and. It can be, you know, not everybody is as open and receptive as, you know, when you get a cold, you know, reach from folks like ourselves. So we can't be any more thankful both that you've agreed to come on today and just being so insightful and just the work that you do 
for its own sake. So, Stavon, thank you so much for joining us here this morning. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.